Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Scientific research about the human body can be very confusing. And we are seeing a lot of that confusion right now when looking at how viruses interact with our bodies. And what gets even more confusing is when research is used to make broad treatment plans that are adopted very quickly, but then when new research that trickles out showing these protocols might not be the best option, it can be a slow process to change the course of these treatment plans. What's up everyone, I'm Brian Carroll and I'm here to help people move more, eat well, and be adventurous. And in today's episode, Angela Pfeiffer and I are going to talk about how widely used the FODMAP diet is for treating IBS and SIBO and how the research might not fully agree with the current uses of the FODMAP diet. We are going to be dissecting a lot of research papers in this episode, so let's get this party started. Angela Pfeiffer is one of the nation's foremost functional medicine, nutrition, and health experts, and an accomplished speaker and radio personality. Her 25 years in the health and fitness industry and the past 15 years as a functional medicine nutritionist focusing in the areas of digestive health, functional gut disorders, thyroid, autoimmune, and SIBO, have earned Angela recognition as a go-to gut expert who can show even the most health-challenged how to restore their gut health and vitality. Thank you for coming on to the show, Angela. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Of course. And so you've been in the health field for 25 years, which is a pretty long time. You've seen a lot of changes, I'm sure. And then especially the last 15 years in the functional medicine side of uh, mm-hmm. of it as well. So can you talk to us about your background? What got you interested? And I would love to hear the changes you've seen over the years. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, you know, I was trained through Bastyr University and uh, before functional medicine even became a buzz term. This, you know, this is how naturopaths are trained. This is how nutritionists at Bastyr are trained. You know, we're, we're you know, used to looking for the root cause and treating the person as a whole and not running after symptoms. You know, and that's kind of the crux of uh, functional medicine as a whole. Uh, my background, uh, my I was a, a trainer and wellness advisor for years. Um, I did a lot of radio um, um, in and around wellness for people prior to stepping into nutrition. Uh, my, my love at that time was actually going to uh, go down the route of uh, being a psychologist and getting my PhD in psychology. Um, and I turned on a dime. I took uh, nutrition and nursing 301 at, Bas- excuse me, at the University of Washington uh, in my senior year and just turned on a dime. I didn't know, nut- you know I, I knew how to eat healthfully. Don't get me wrong. I didn't know nutrition as a field. But when I was sitting there amidst, you know, three to 400 students, and they were talking about hot dogs, hamburgers, and mac and cheese as major food groups for kids. (laughs) It's like, oh my God, I got to do nutrition. So it was like, just like shift, shift gears. And thankfully, Bastyr was a stone throw away because as I looked at all of my options in Seattle, being a Seattle girl and living here my entire life, uh, it was, it was phenomenal. I I still live about seven minutes from Bastyr. Just, it's just great. So uh, I trained uh, uh, through their master's program in nutrition, um, and then I've, I've gone on to get um, a, a certification of functional medicine. And we we really practice. I mean, um, uh, woke medical providers <laughs> practice integrative medicine. We practice functional medicine. It's just it's just the nature of what we do when we evolve and and really great teams to support patients and work with patients. 
um, and treat each one as an individual and treat the patient, not the labs. We look at the patient. Unfortunately, those uh, major food groups for children still seems to be around. So that hasn't changed Mm -hmm. much in 25 years. But that could be um, a lead into uh, the topic today, which is going to be around IBS and the FODMAP diet. So can you talk to us a little bit about um, IBS in general, like how many people, percentage of people that have it and um, different conditions that could fall under the category of IBS? Yeah, uh... So in the U.S. population, um, the um, last studies show about 10 to 15 percent of the the population has IBS, which is a lot of people. Um, When we start to look at that population, what's what's interesting to me, I mean, being being in practice for this long, um, I worked with uh, IBS and functional gut disorders from the start. I uh, worked with emotional eating from the start, which really tied into my psychology, you know, uh, degree and all that education. Um, and so as I went through, there seemed to be a shift in gears in terms of patient presentation about seven years ago. And, and my colleagues that are in this field say the same thing. All of a sudden, SIBO came, blare, you know, the, the train just hit the station. It was very interesting where what we knew what to do for IBS, which was beautiful, worked for 99% of the people, all of a sudden stopped working. Like SIBO came on. So I had to change gears and figure out what is this? How do we treat it? And this group of people needed so much more hand-holding. So we have this group of IBS patients in the U.S., right? And it's actually, um, uh, studies are showing that, um, depending on the study, and I know this is a, this is a wide range here, but 4 to 78% of people with IBS actually have SIBO. Oh, wow. So if you go to your doctor with IBS symptoms and they're running all these other tests, you go to your GI doctor, you, it's, a fu- it's a functional presentation. You don't really see... You know, they don't see immune cell changes in the gut. They don't, you know, they're not seeing, uh, you know, microvilli um, uh, changes. They aren't seeing physical changes. They're seeing that when they go in, the, the gut spasms a bit. They see um, other symptoms that people would have, you know, where the Rome criteria, you're going to have a certain amount of um, uh, cramping, loose stool, you know, that sort of thing over a period of time. And then you get this diagnosis. But, you, you know, you get that diagnosis and you, you kind of be, you're sent on your way. So, is um, we look at this, we really need to see, as we're looking at IBS, um, irritable bowel syndrome, how many of those people actually have SIBO? How many have IBS? Um, and what can we do to help them? Like, we really have to identify what it is first. And so you hear different terms, IBS and IBD thrown out there. Are they interchangeable or are they different? They're not. IBD is inflammatory bowel disorder. Um, and um, though IBS can have a little inflammation, IBD is in a whole nother world and realm that yeah it's just they're they're just completely different so this isn't crohn's this isn't ulcerative colitis this isn't any of the colitis um um you know irritable bowel syndrome is something else um and it can be um um you know learned over time anxiety stress um innervation issues uh there's a lot of different issues that can come with it when we start to jump over into the SIBO realm um, we're looking at different causes for that. Um, there's something that is affecting motility um, or interfering with motility within the small intestine that is allowing a niche to take hold and more organisms build up in that area. And although we have you know, way more organisms in the large intestine into the trillions than we do in the small intestine into the millions, we're supposed to have a microbiota there, but we're not supposed to have too much, you know? So when we eat foods and those foods pass down through that overgrowth, 
um, there's a fermentation that's happening as those organisms break down indigestible fibers that we can't break down ourselves. And when that happens, they're consuming those and they're creating this gas. And you have two things that go on for people with IBS and with SIBO. There's this osmotic shift from foods that come down, drawing more water and more irritation into the small intestine, which carries over into, you know, loose stool for people. Um, or you can have too much fermentation going on from that overgrowth and that, you know, uh, there's some stretching distension in an area that should not be distended. Um, there's pain, there's bloating, there's stalling with the intestinal tract. Um, there's, there's just a lot of symptoms that can come with it. And when you're talking about distension, some people can look mm -hmm. uh, pregnant, like six months pregnant or whatnot, yeah. and it can happen pretty quickly. Yeah. Now, since it um, it's a bacterial overgrowth, is there specific strains that's usually involved or does the strain not matter as long as something's overgrowing? Yeah. So um, I like to say, so SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. But when we look at SIBO, there's actually organisms that aren't bacteria. The archaea that produce um, uh, the methanogens that produce methane are not bacteria. So I like to say it's just a small intestine bowel overgrowth is my favorite way to say it. Um, and there are different organisms at play. Um, what's really interesting is uh, Dr. Pimentel out of Cedar Cyanide and um, the MASS program is um, mapping the small intestine when we've not had that map before. So um, I think in the coming years, we will have more and more information on the small intestine and a little bit more um, specifics on what is involved here. You know, as of yet, you can go in and do an aspirate. You can go through um, an endoscopy down into the small intestine, getting into that upper, you know, the, the duodenum to the jejunum to the ileum, 20 feet of small intestine. And with that, uh, tube, you can basically go down into the duodenum and the upper jejunum, pull it back out as you test that, you know, pulling some fluid with it, and you can culture it to see what's there. That's kind of the gold standard so far, seeing what's there. Um, they've created a device that actually um, um, collects that um, and goes down further. Um, and so they're going to map that out so we'll know more. I mean, to date, we've, we've had that upper GI aspirate that they can test. And then we've also had stool testing to look at, but stool is not looking at anything small intestine. So, right. um, you know, it's, so um, Klebsiella pneumoniae, um, E. coli, and not the, not the pathogenic um, uh, one, the, the virulent form. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, archaea methanogens, they're, you know, the, the M. smithii were probably the, the most prevalently involved, um, but there's definitely more um, than that. And we'll know more as that um, the mass um, program is continues. Yeah, I like how you um, call it small intestinal bowel overgrowth because you have SIBO, you have CFO for the fungal. And so just combining them all into one saying, I think would be a lot easier um, because then you start to get a little bit confused. And the whole research into the microbiome and everything is so fascinating because like you said, we're just kind of gathering information, data and seeing what's there. And in the next five, 10 years, we're going to learn a lot more about it. But right now yeah. it's kind of the information gathering period. Yeah. So the stool, uh, stool testing that's done um, as we look at um, Rob Knight and Dr. Gilbert, um, basically they created uh, a type of sequencing, a PCR um, RS-16 uh, sequencing to look at stool sampling. And they use that in the lab. They use that in their labs for studies. <clears throat> when they're actually testing 
um, their subjects, they're doing uh, multiple, like uh, hundreds of different samples to create this database and use it for comparison. Um, as we kick over and start to look at all the stool sampling that's offered through practitioners and direct to the public, uh, they're offering those services based on that style of testing. But that style of testing was not meant for a single sample. Mm. Um, and there's also no interpretation. We have no ranges for healthy subjects because honestly, 100 people could have, which they wouldn't, but they could have the same microbiota and they're all reacting differently. We have different phenotypes. We have different reactions to our environment. And what could be you know, virulent or pathogenic in one person is not in the other. So uh, it's really, you know, if you're looking at GI map, Genova Diagnostics, doctor's data, all the stool sampling that's being done, that's all based on that testing. And yet we don't have a way of interpreting it. So um, it's interesting to hear both of them speak and they're, you know, they, they don't see much uh, uh, weight, um, scientific weight put on any of uh, any of those uh, uh, stool uh, sampling uh, reports. And so it's quite interesting as we start to look at that where, you know, people are really trying to figure out what's what's going on within themselves. And there's, a, I think, a lot of practitioners leaning on those readily. And yet that's not what they were, that style is not what they were meant to be used for. Uh, what's also interesting is that we've got a, you know, we've got a virome, we've got, which is, you know, a hundred times more um, uh, present than our microbiome. Uh, we've got um, our, our fungosome, <laughs> if you want to say that. And uh, it's, it, I think it's quite interesting where um, it's, you know, inexpensive to run the PCR testing. Um, and, uh, that could be readily available to the public. And yet we have all these other things going on within our, us. And, you know, even if you ran all of your viruses and let's look at the list, what's the issue. So it's kind of the same thing. You have no idea what's actually being virulent or reacting in you. So it's interesting as we just look at um, the stool testing as it relates to any of the um, SIBO studies that have been out there and, you know, how much of a conclusion can we draw? Yeah, and this is probably going to take us down an interesting um, wormhole that we probably don't want to spend too much time in. But I've heard uh, Karen and Krishnan talk about the stool samples as well. And I know there's a lot of practitioners out there that are, like you said, they're taking the stool samples and then they're creating protocols and making uh, decisions on the treatment process based off of that. Do you think mm -hmm. at this time we should not be treating that way and we should be getting more data? Yeah, so, uh, so I don't run the stool samples at this point, knowing what I know. Mm. Um, I don't run those labs. Um, when I see those labs, they're interesting. Do we see patterns overall that are overgrowth? Do we see patterns overall that are undergrowth? Um, do we, um, I, I love all the digestive markers, you know, are they um, malabsorbing fats? Um, are there um, pathogenic um, species present, like there's, there is some info to gather from those, but the idea that we can actually look at just the PCR testing and say, ah, you're high in this one and you're low in this one. So you have X, Y, and Z, or you're high in this one. That's your issue. We're going to treat that. It's, it's show, show me the studies right. that back that yep. up. Awesome. Well, when it comes to SIBO, is there any specific ways to treat it or is the treatment process pretty widespread? What would you do for it? Yeah, so SIBO, what's really interesting and, and why, why it's so difficult, um, you know, as we're looking for, it's considered a recurring condition. Um, and why to me it's considered a recurring condition is because people are trying to treat it as a primary 
issue. SIBO is a secondary issue, it's not primary, uh, meaning that it is set up for other reasons. And you have to get to that piece. You have to figure out what set it up and treat that to resolve SIBO. Um, to me, anyone that gets a fresh test, goes in around antibiotics and walks away, probably had just more of a, a bit of dysbiosis. They, you know, there, there was uh, a little bit of change gathered from that, but, you know, to have a full-blown case of SIBO taking antibiotic, an, antibiotics one round, probably something else is going on. Um, and it, I, I don't know that it was necessarily SIBO. So SIBO is a secondary condition. And so from that, as we treat, um, we get to the root cause, what is interfering with motility, what is affecting motility, um, you know, taking a step back, looking at the patient overall, and then uh, there may be a point that you have to treat SIBO directly, and that's absolutely fine. Um, and then with that, we would treat that, um, hopefully, um, cleaning up the diet, supporting digestion, supporting um, liver bioflow, and uh, uh, doing herbal, you know, antibiotics. That would that would usually be the first um, uh, step approach. Um, we always have to look at this as doing the the foundational piece first. And that's cleaning up the diet, supporting digestion, um, supporting motility, um, getting to the root cause, and then figuring out at that point, do you still need to treat? What, how, is the, how is the patient feeling? Because we're treating the patient, not the lab. We never want to run breath test after breath test and treat, 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 treat. We have to treat the and patient. It's interesting about the antibiotics because that's going to kill off the um, bacteria. But if it's not bacterial based, if it's something else like a fungal overgrowth, wouldn't yeah. you be wiping out the potentially beneficial bacteria that could be trying to keep the fungal overgrowth under control? Yeah, um, it's honestly, it's very good point. Um, they've done a couple of studies on that where people, um, there were 100 subjects in the study and uh, um, everybody presented with classic SIBO symptoms. And they went in and they actually did the aspirate um, we talked about a little bit earlier, and when they cultured that, a third of the people had SIBO, a third had CFO, which is small intestinal fungal overgrowth, and a third had both. So of those 100 subjects, two-thirds of those people had a fungal issue in the small intestine. If you give them antibiotics, it's going to aggravate the fungal issue. It, it doesn't affect the fungal issue, and woo, thanks. <laughs> you just opened up a lot more niches for us. So that's, again, that's, that's one other reason why I always think herbs first. Um, antibiotics are for people that can't handle herbs, no matter what you try, doesn't matter if it's a tincture of something, they, they don't do well. Antibiotics might be helpful, but you also do yeast support as you go through that. You, you have to, um, because we can't make people worse. And uh, let's talk about like from a food and dietary standpoint for IBS, a lot of the recommendations right now is a FODMAP diet. Um, mm -hmm. and I would love to hear your ideas around that. But first off, what is a FODMAP diet? What does it stand for? Yeah, it's an acronym. It stands for fructo, uh, fructo oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and, and polyols. And basically, it's different foods and indigestible fibers that we bring in with our diet that can um, cause two things. One, uh, that osmotic shift that we talked about. So um, the disaccharide within that group, within that acronym is lactose. And um, if people don't readily digest lactose, um, lactose will build up in the small intestine and it'll cause an osmotic shift and that will cause loose watery stool and cramping. It's very similar with the other groups of FODMAPs, but it's per the individual. What does the individual react to? 
So basically, the FODMAP diet was created for IBS. It wasn't created for SIBO. Um, it turns out that it, it can work quite nicely for SIBO to calm down symptoms because, uh, you know, pretty much everybody with SIBO has IBS-like symptoms. And as we start to look at that, um, you know, you can you can slow down that osmotic shift. You have a, you know you have a population that's more sensitive to GI symptoms and reactivity, so you can calm down that osmotic shift. And you can also um, with the diet, if you go all in with it, you can remove foods um, that are passing by that overgrowth that they're consuming and producing that gas, which then cause symptoms as well. Um, what we have to highlight, however, is that the diet is not in any way shape or form, a direct treatment for SIBO. It doesn't starve out the organisms. And that's really why everybody went all in with it for so long. And that's why it's still to this day, you know, you have SIBO, you go on a FODMAP diet, you can't quote feed what's in there. But you're not, you're, even though when it's passing through, they're consuming and producing that fermentation, it's not fueling a growth of organisms in your small intestine. And that's the difference. So it's not as if, you know, for a visual, you've got SIBO in a Petri dish and you're putting some FODMAP on it and it's bubbling over. <laughs> it's not getting, it's not growing and worse and worse, but people are equating it that way when they're eating because they get symptoms and that feels like, oh, it's, I'm, you know, SIBO is growing bigger and bigger. Like, no, you're just getting that fermentation reaction. So as we look at the diet, um, you know, being in practice and focusing on SIBO for so long, I see person after person. I mean, that my my typical patient has been had SIBO for you know three to seven years, and they've been through uh, seven to ten doctors, and they it just antibiotic round, antibiotic round, herbal, 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 antibiotic round, tons of tests run, and they're never getting to the other side of it. And they've been on a FODMAP diet the entire time. And there's been periods of time where they're only on a really restrictive FODMAP diet. And you know what? They still have SIBO. It doesn't starve it out. And we've got studies that show this. There's actually very good studies that look at uh, the low FODMAP diet, you know, feeding people um, three to, I'm sorry, pardon me, um, uh, seven to nine grams of FODMAP for the low FODMAP diet and 50 grams of FODMAP for the high FODMAP diet every single day for people that have SIBO for three weeks or six weeks. Methane doesn't go up. Hydrogen doesn't go up on a lactulose breath test. And then the low FODMAP, it doesn't go down. Hmm. So it's not starving it out and it's not making it worse. That's what's interesting. So you, you take a group of people that already have SIBO and uh, the typical, typical person would probably consume around 17 to 23, 24 grams of FODMAPs within a day. Um, and so you take that person and you're near tripling the amount of FODMAP that they're taking in which is like massive amounts for three weeks or six weeks and the levels don't go up. Interesting. So it, yeah, yeah, it's very, so um, and, and symptoms go up. Um, some symptoms actually resolve. Um, so it's just, it's interesting. And what I also think about too, is we know with methane production, methane um, further slows the intestinal tract. And so I start to think about that because some of the studies are looking at methane dominant um, uh, uh, SIBO in patients. And they're feeding this, feeding high FODMAP loads. Um, so with that, if you were then fermenting and you're producing more methane, you would think there'd be more slowdown, which would create more of a niche for SIBO to grow. And yet when you test it, methane production is not up. There's not more methanogens there producing more methane. Hmm. So 
when we look at the FODMAP diet, what I've seen time and time again is that not only do you have a person that already has dysbiosis, they already have IBS symptoms, they're already dealing with chronic symptoms. Now you're sticking them on a crazy restrictive diet and um, affects them emotionally, it affects them socially, they can't go eat anywhere, they can't eat with their family, you can't produce, you can't make a meal for the entire family that you're going to enjoy. Um, you know, yes, you can on a low FODMAP diet, there's, you know, recipes that you can use, but any of the usual family meals have things in them that are, you know, are in the FODMAPs, it's, it's, it makes it very difficult. So people start eating, you know, a piece of chicken and carrots every single night, they do, they, they, um, and I say re with great respect, they dumb it down. They, they look at the diet and they say, well, I'm just going to eat simply, in, you know, really restrictive because anytime I go off this, I have a reaction. I'm going to make SIBO worse and I want to get rid of SIBO. And they're just stuck in this little rut and they can't get out of it and they're backed into a corner. And that's what going on this diet does to the vast majority of people that go on it. And the other carbohydrate altering diets are no better in terms of, so we, we've got FODMAPs, we've got the SIBO specific food guide. Um, and then we've got the biphasic diet, which is basically the SIBO specific food guide combines FODMAP and SCB, this um, specific carbohydrate diet. So it's more restrictive than FODMAP. And the, um, and, and why that was created by Alison Seebecker. She feels that there's some polysaccharides um, that are in the a low FODMAP diet that might still be triggering for people. And then the biphasic diet basically takes the SIBO specific food guide, and it, it introduces it in phases. So none of those diets have, those other two diets don't have any studies behind them. They're more restrictive than a FODMAP diet. They can't be any better. They can't be. Like it's, it's got to be the same thing. You're going to alter carbohydrates that much within a diet. You're going to make the, the gut, um, the intestine uh, more dysbiotic. Um, if somebody has methane, um, SIBO and is more constipated, you're pulling all those fibers that help keep them regular. You're sticking on something that is uh, um, really restricted, really restricted and, uh, you know, affecting them emotionally. So it's, um, we're really at this pivotal point where when we start to, you know, the SIBO symposium that happens down in um, Portland um, each year, last year, they had a full track that was on um, emotional eating and disordered eating around SIBO. Hmm. Um, the SIBO specific um, diet changed to the SIBO specific food guide. And that's wonderful. And she's always said, Miss Allison Seebecker is so lovely. She's always said that, you know, um, that, you know, this is a guide. These are foods that are less likely to cause symptoms in somebody that has SIBO. And yet that's not how, once that diet is applied and everyone like grabs it and runs with it, <laughs> that's not what happens in the day-to-day -day life. Um, everybody is going going in with both feet, fully restrictive, and thinking that I've got to starve it out. I've got to starve it out. And in doing so, they starve themselves emotionally, they starve themselves physically, and um, they starve themselves socially. And you know, to me, as we're looking at rebalancing the intestinal tract and digestion, um, as you know, you can't be under a bunch of stress and rebalance that. You want relaxation, you want flow, you want connection with your food, you want um, that food to give you energy, um, that you want that food to support your immune system and help balance everything. And if we're on a really restrictive diet and have such fear around food and reactivity and concerns that there's ever a symptom, which there's lots of symptoms when we look at SIBO, 
it's 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 how does that digestive system flow? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because if you restrict the diet so much and you're losing all this variety of uh, foods, you could be putting someone into a situation, like you said, where they're only eating two things and then they're going to be losing out on micronutrients. It could potentially change the microbiome. There's a lot of impact over the long term. They could develop some type of sensitivity or whatnot to it as well. And then if yeah. if that's the case, then what happens? Now you can't eat anything. You're just on like the elemental diet, right? Yes. So yeah, yeah it's 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 a super interesting conversation to have. And it, I also find it very interesting that low FODMAP, super high FODMAP, the methane never changed. Like that's, right. that's very interesting. Right, right. And when you really get in and look at the studies, uh, and you have to really, as, as we all should, right? We should never take the title of the study <laughs> at face value, nor the summary. You have to get in and actually look at what they studied. What did they compare? What was the finding? Um, and when you really um, delve deep into the studies, um, there's a lot of studies that so lactulose breath test. The you know whole premise of it is that you uh, uh, you do a food prep for 12 hours, basically the day before you do the food, the the um, the breath test you're going to alter your diet to reduce the fermentation load in your colon. So when you do the breath test, you drink lactulose, which ferments all the way down through the small intestine, and you can then detect an overgrowth, that fermentation and off-gassing that exchanges from your lungs and out your breath into the breath test. You actually can see if there's an overgrowth along the small intestine. So you do a food prep the day before, you fast for 12 hours, and then you, um, you know, get up in the morning, wait two hours, and you do the test. Um, you do the test for three hours, you don't eat, you, you know, you're, you're not eating prior to this test. But when you start to get in and look at a lot of the studies that are looking at low FODMAP and a breath test, a vast majority of them did not food prep properly. Um, one of them provided food that was high FODMAP. Um, and uh, they actually breath test, you know, they might do a fasting the first one, but then they breath test while people are eating, they breath test for up to 15 hours. And then they're looking at that data and saying, look what we found. Like, well, you're not even, that's not, that's not, we're not looking at anything that that test was validated for. That's not how that test was validated for use. So you really, as you're looking at, you know, as a, as a clinician, as you're looking at the SIBO studies and the FODMAP studies and the, the breath testing studies, you have to look at these um, just point by point. And that's why I wrote, a, you know, that two page article with near 70 citations. Like we have to look at every one of those studies and say, wait a second, <laughs> what, <laughs> you, how, how did you test this? This isn't how we, you know, this isn't how we test this. You can't draw conclusions off this. We don't, we don't even know what you're looking Which at at this point. is a great example of the difficulty around nutritional and health studies is because there's so many different variables that can happen. And uh, mm -hmm. there's so many mistakes you can make in the process too. Like you have all yeah. the observational studies where people, you know, write out, oh, this is what I ate over the last 15 years. Well, do you yes. actually remember what you ate over the last 15 years? Because I don't remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday. No. So No, and that's, that's a big, yeah, that's a big one. So but most of them are questionnaires. Mm -hmm. Most of them say, you know, in the last, you know, last six months or last year, on average, how many pieces of fruit did you eat on a you know, weekly basis? <laughs> You're like, what? And that's then what they then say, aha, um, 
I'm, make, I'm conjecture here, but you know, um, multivitamins are linked with cardiovascular disease. You know, it's it, they're they're looking at this observational data that's not even it's not real. It's not a, a, a correct uh, review of what a person has done over the last year. You you can't even you know if you feed somebody a meal where they've done this study. If you feed some feed somebody a meal and take that meal away and you give them a piece of paper and say write down what you just had, they underestimate what they ate. We all want to think we eat a certain way. Um, we're we're good more often than not, you know. And it's if you start actually tracking, which when I have when I work with anyone, they actually track in their journal everything by mouth, how they're feeling, uh, any symptoms that come up, any supplements that they're taking. They track all their lifestyle, um, uh, you know, uh, activities, um, how much they're sleeping. I look at that for four or five days before we put a plan together because doesn't matter what they tell you. It matters what they tell you. I don't mean that, but it's a, they're they're going to tell you what they think of everything. And then you get to see some things in practice. And what I always hear every single time, oh, that week wasn't my usual week. Mm -hmm. You know, I eat a lot better than that. Oh, we had this big thing come up at work. Well, that's, that's our life week by week, right? If there's always an event, we're always not home every night. It's so we, we have to look at you know, what is actually in, in motion for the patient as well as we're working on that. And that's, that's, I'm a hub, um, with all the doctors in when, when I work with the patient, I'm definitely a patient advocate as I'm working with my patient. And I, I try to connect all the doctors that we're working with as that hub and actually show them, you know, you've had 15 minutes with this patient and you're treating X, Y, and Z. That's great. This is actually what's happening day to day. And when they see that they're, Oh, <laughs> you know, I didn't realize that. Um, so it's, it's, it's just interesting. We've, you know, we've got to, we've got to really kind of nail down what's happening on a day-to-day basis for a patient so we can make the best use of our time and treat them properly. Which let's go into different treatment options. So since, um, low FODMAP diet might change it, might not, we don't fully know because the methane levels, what's that? (laughs) It won't change it. It won't change it. it um it actually makes people more dysbiotic um it um yeah it 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 doesn't change it it doesn't starve out the organisms it makes them more dysbiotic um all the all the media hype out there about a low fodmap diet lowering histamines is not true uh the study that i break down in the article that i wrote um did not find a statistical significance and they didn't even test urine histamines properly um, and there's over a hundred Google results, excuse me, a hundred thousand, pardon me, <laughs> Google results um, for uh, FODMAP and histamines. Like it just spread like wildfire and it, you, we're not going to get it back. So um, it, it won't. So, so I want to be mindful here because people with IBS and people with SIBO that have IBS symptoms are going to have to alter their diet in some way to settle symptoms down. So they're not debilitating every single day. Um, it doesn't mean you have to go on a restrictive plan. It means that you can look at the list of foods and say, you know, these are foods that are a little bit more likely to, you know, more likely, not a little bit, they're more likely to cause symptoms in people that have IBS or SIBO. Um, are there things here I'm eating on a regular basis? Uh, could I track my intake and track my symptoms? When are my symptoms flaring? Um, and for a person, you know, if there's, uh, if there's autoimmune present, if there, if, if there are other conditions that are really getting fired up by GI symptoms and a person's, um, reactions to diet are so great that they're getting in the way of that person 
moving through their life. They have a hard time getting to work. They have a hard time sleeping, you know, all of it. That would, they would be a very good candidate for doing an elimination diet with FODMAP plan. But that elimination diet is three to four weeks on the diet. And then you challenge the different groups, figuring out which you are reacting to. Um, as a clinician, when I work with somebody, I can pick it out 99% of the time. What do you know you react to in the past? Let's track everything, you know, track your symptoms. And um, what, you know, give me a list of foods that you feel are, are more safe, because sometimes people don't eat everything they eat, in, you know, four to five days. So, you know, as we look at that, you, is somebody that's trained, you can see the patterns, you can see what they're reacting to. We can also reverse engineer it, so to speak, fructans, you know, garlic and onion leeks. Uh, those are foods that are more likely to cause symptoms for people. Um, lactose, fructose, those are you know, uh, FODMAPs that are more likely to cause symptoms in people. So we can, we can look at those and alter those first without pulling everything and putting people through um, an elimination diet that they don't have right. to go through. Awesome. Um, and then do you do anything with uh, the microbiome, potentially um, trying to change any of that in your protocols? Or what, what's your thoughts around all that? Because so many yeah. people are taking probiotics, they're taking... You know, spore yeah. based or not yeah, spore based. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So again, we've got to treat the individual. Um, there's there's no there's no algorithm that treats SIBO. To me, that gets somebody into recurrence. Mm. Because if you look at it as you have symptoms, you're gonna test, it's positive or negative, it's positive, you treat, you move on, wait, now I have symptoms, you go back up to the top. That's just getting people in that recurrence. So um Things in the toolbox are absolutely probiotics, spore-based probiotics, bacillus coagulans. Um, there's there's good probiotic studies that actually normalize a breath test. So, you know, we, we've got to look at the data and we've got to look that the majority of people with SIBO actually feel better on a probiotic, but you can't take anything with um, FOS or GOS, like those, basically the FODMAP piece, um, those prebiotics, you don't want those in your in your probiotic. Um, and if you react to one probiotic, try a different one. Um, I think sometimes people get really scared off of them. And what I've found too, is that, and this is where a lot of the myth is propagated online is that uh, a person's going along, not feeling well, but not really feeling uh, really bad, um, kind of complacent with their symptoms set as things have shifted. And they start a probiotic and have a really big reaction. And they say that probiotic caused my SIBO. Mm. It never caused the SIBO. It can't cause the SIBO. It didn't, that did not happen. Um, but it flared their symptoms to the point where onset, right? That's where they realize, ah, now I react to a lot more things. And it's kind of, you know, it's one of those uh, triggering events, but it didn't cause SIBO. And so now we've got lots of people online saying, you know, it caused my SIBO when it didn't. Um, uh, probiotics do amazing things um, from, you know, um, blocking pathogens from adhering to the lining, um, helping to, you know, crosstalk with our immune system um, to um, train it properly. There's, you know, there's there's so many good things that probiotics do. Um, different immunoglobulin therapies can be very helpful. Um, um, and then, um, you know, supporting the person. Do they do they have a suppressed immune system? Do they have um, poor bile movement? Um, everyone's going to need help with motility. 
and not do you go to the bathroom. Um, it's supporting the migrating motor complex and the cleansing wave that's coming through and what you need to do for that. Um, everyone needs an assessment on digestion and proper signaling. Um, are they gastric emptying properly? Are they signaling digestive enzyme release? Um, do they have um, issues digesting food? Um, is, you know, are things not moving properly through them? So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a really broad stroke when we start to look at SIBO because, again, what set it up? What's happening within, in, within the intestinal tract? Awesome. Yep, that makes sense. And then you you mentioned, like, people having light symptoms or symptoms that are pretty mild. They come on and off. Would you say that they're mild symptoms or it's come on so slowly that they have kind of adapted to it and they believe that's their new normal or their normal, how they feel? And in reality, once they feel a lot better than those mild symptoms were actually a lot worse than they originally thought. Yes to all. <laughs> yes to all. I feel I feel like as people move through that complacency piece, and again, I say that with, with great respect, it's um, we're so used to just getting on with it, especially women. Um, we just get on with it and we've got things to do. And I don't know why I have chronic burping. I don't know all of a sudden why I can't go to the bowel movement as, you know, have a bowel movement as often. Um, I might try some things to settle that down, but you know, until it's, until you're doubled over in pain or in bed for, you know, a period of time, we don't say, Oh, something's going on. So, um, oftentimes, um, it isn't until you clear that symptom do people realize, Oh, I was dealing with that all day long and I didn't, I didn't realize they feel so much better on the other side. Well, is there any final things you want to touch on when it comes to IBS, FODMAP, SIBO, et cetera? Yeah, the main thing I'd say uh, is uh, for patients, if your practitioner is trying to put you on a FODMAP diet or has recommended a FODMAP diet or the SIBO-specific food guide or a biphasic diet, you need a plan of what, why, first of all, why, why are you putting me on this? If it's a starve out organisms, send them my article. It doesn't starve out the organisms. So if we just go from that standpoint, uh, let's make sure if it is going to be used, that there is an in and out plan, that this is used only as an elimination style diet, three to four weeks, and you start challenging the food groups on the other side. For the patients that are hearing this, when you go on this diet, it is going to calm down symptoms in most people. It is very hard at that point to challenge the food groups because you don't want to bring on more symptoms. You get relief from symptoms and it's, you know, that's, that's good, but you have to challenge, you have to move past that diet. You cannot stay on it. It's not healthy. Um, you're going to cause more dysbiosis over time and it's, it's, you've got to move off of it. So uh, there's always going to have to be some reintroduction and some adjustments to that. Um, for practitioners listening, uh, you know, the main things that people are using the FODMAP diet are to start about the organisms, uh, normalize the lactulose breath test, uh, you know, drop histamines. None of those are true. It, it doesn't do any of those. So you've got to be really mindful that you're not using this as a Band-Aid because you have somebody in your office and you, you're just adding it on. Like we have to be mindful that we're only using that with a, a smaller group of people. Um, and I, I, I do see about day in and day out. I've got we people all over the world that I work with and um, I don't ever put anybody on a FODMAP diet and I get SIBO cleared. All the people that come to me are on a altered diet and we expand immediately. 
what five foods would you like to bring in that aren't garlic and onion? <laughs> so we start with those. We introduce them slowly. We make foods easier to digest. Um, you know, all cooked foods, eating slowly, mindful eating, all of that really slow people down. Um, it might be that they try a tablespoon of something and it doesn't work. They're going to try that again in a couple weeks or maybe a month. We sometimes have to go very slow and that's, that's what makes it difficult. People, people will think, okay, I'm going to expand and they'll go eat a cup of something and react. And it's, we just have to go very slow with the introduction. Um, I'd say, um, with fun, uh, excuse me, with IBS and SIBO, you know, you're going to need to alter things in a certain way to calm symptoms down, but it's, you're not going to get to net zero with your symptoms. You have to treat the root cause. Um, and the diet again is just going to be a bandaid. So just be mindful that you're not going on that for the wrong reasons. Um, be mindful that as a practitioner, you're not sticking somebody on a FODMAP diet that's underweight. Be mindful that you're not sticking somebody on a FODMAP diet when they have methane dominant SIBO because you need the fibers. Lots to keep of good regular. tidbits in this episode. I love it. Well, people can find you at SIBOGuru.com. You also mm -hmm. have a couple other websites. Do you want to talk about those real quick? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a FODMAP recipe site. After all this conversation, right? Um, my uh, simplysibo.com. And why I offer that is because I help people expand off the FODMAP diet. And the first step for them is to expand within the diet. That where again, where that person is eating chicken and carrots most nights, there are a lot of other foods to eat. And I show them how to do it very simply. Um, I also show them how to challenge the different groups, um, the FODMAP groups on there, how to introduce foods very slowly. And it's a, a stepping point to first expand diet um, and get more variety in and then start to expand diet off of there. Uh, so simply, simply SIBO.com. And then my other, um, I have a, a low FODMAP bone broth company. Um, it's uh, gutprescriptiongurus.com, um, 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 gutrx. Uh, uh, guru.com and you can uh, find that online uh, if you're in the Seattle area we sell at PCC markets the Met market um, um, all the local co-ops and then you can also order us online uh, and again the main reason I made that is for people with um, inflammatory bowel disease uh, people with IBS people with uh, SIBO that's something that can help heal their gut and, uh, you know, they can have it on a daily basis without worrying that there's garlic or onion. And in there. we will have all of the, these different websites and the links to the articles that we were mentioning at summitforwellness.com slash 106. So it'll all be right there so people can uh, see where to go. Thank Excellent. you so much, Angela. This was a fantastic conversation. I loved just the depth of it. I think it's super powerful that you were able to, you know, go deep into this type of subject because, mm -hmm. like you said, so many practitioners, FODMAP's the way to go. And they hand it out and then you go off on your own and you never talk to your practitioner again and then you're stuck on it forever. So uh, yeah. the more we can help people, the better. So thank I, you. I absolutely agree. And I think as well for, for GI doctors, they're handing this out more often. They're, uh, they used to not, uh, mo I think as a field, they thought SIBO was ridiculous. The, the last year and a half have been uh, an about face for a lot of them, not all of them by any means, but for a lot of them. And now that they have a FODMAP diet to hand out, they're handing it out right readily. But how often as an IBS patient or a SIBO patient, how often do you see your GI doc? So basically you're, you're getting that diet handed to you and you are leaving that office. You might see them six months out. 
you can't be on that diet for that long. Um, and so it's, there's no, there's no follow up with that. There's no um, support with that to be had. And it's, that's, that's why they should check out your sites. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Angela. Of course. Of course. Thanks for having me on, Brian. It was a great conversation. If you want to see a full breakdown of all these research articles mentioned in this episode, head on over to summitforwellness.com slash 106 to access all of the show notes. And if you have some digestive issues that could be related to SIBO, make sure to go over and check out the resources Angela has available for you. And did you know that I have an entire section with all the different items and resources that I recommend on my website? You can reference back to anything at summitforwellness.com slash recommends. Next week, Dr. Jill Krista is coming on the show to talk about mold, so let's go learn a little more about her. I am here with Dr. Jill Krista. Hey, Dr. Jill, what is one unique thing about you that most people don't know? I love to dance and had a chance to dance across three countries in Africa and learn traditional African dance, and it was a blast. Which countries? Zimbabwe, Botswana, and Zambia. Wow. Yeah. And what will we be learning about in our interview together? We're going to be learning all about mold and how to break the mold. Mm. Mold is such a lovely thing to deal with. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> what are your favorite foods or nutrients that you think everyone should get more of in their diet? Colorful vegetables. Absolutely. You can't go wrong. Go for color. Eat the rainbow. And then what are your top three health tips for anyone who wants to improve their overall wellness? Respect your body's need for sleep, number one. Get outside, number two. And number three, get away from screens. Get in front of that screen more than you think you are. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> Mold is a fascinating topic and was a big player in my own health journey, which you can hear about next week. So until then... Keep climbing to the peak of your health.